Feature flags, also known as feature toggles, release toggles, or feature flippers, are a way to enable or disable a particular feature from your app without making any changes to the source code. You can turn on or off particular functionality without deploying new code. Feature flags can also be used to serve different features to different subsets of users. The company Flagsmith provides you a platform for developing, implementing, and managing your feature flags. Ben Romtesh is the co-founder and CEO of Flagsmith, and he joins us today. Hi, Ben. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Powell. Hey, yeah, nice to meet you. Great to be here. Nice to meet you, too. So let's start with Flagsmith. So what is Flagsmith, uh, Flagsmith and what do you guys do? So uh, well, Flagsmith is both a, an open source project and uh, a commercial business. Um, we're a feature flagging and remote config and A-B testing platform, uh, you know, that's designed, you know, around the concepts of, of feature flagging, this concept idea of decoupling deployment and release of, of, of your features from your deployments. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff that runs off from that initial idea, basically. Mm -hmm. And how did you, about a little bit more about yourself, how did you get into programming? At what were, what were the first steps that you have taken within the software industry? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm going to show my age now. So my first computer was a 8-bit ZX Spectrum. I think I was 10, 9 or 10 years old. Um, so that was a, it had, it had a, a Z80 processor that ran at, one megahertz it had 48 kilobytes of ram um and it was brilliant like you turn it on you plug it into the tv um and it just showed you could run basic basically you could you could program it in basic or assembler or basically the only or, or machine code were the the only three languages that you could use to write uh to program it um, and so yeah being 10 years old i uh would I'd spend like half the time playing video games Actually, maybe a bit more than half the time. Um, mm -hmm. And then the other half, um, yeah, writing basic programs, and you know, the, the, you could draw graphics on the on the on the screen like very very simply, and it just just went from there basically. So, um, oh yeah, I was just immediately the moment. I mean, I I, I remember my school. The entire it was a huge school that had like seven forms per year. So like, you know, thousands of children and it had one computer, which was a link for AZ and they, they used, they had it on a trolley and they'd come and like, you'd get the computer in your classroom for one day, every term, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, and that's, and that's how I got into it. And then, you know, the, the computer turned into the spectrum turned into an Amiga um, the Amiga turned into a 486 PC. The 486 PC turned into a Pentium and yada, yada, yada. Um, and yeah, then I, so I went to university. I started, studied AI and software engineering uh, a long time ago. So yeah, like everything now, the world's so different. I mean, AI obviously uh, completely different, but, you know, software engineering um, was, uh, you know, there were, version control systems didn't exist. Mm. Any form of collaborative tooling for programming didn't exist um you know the development environments and debuggers and all of this stuff were like you know very 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 primitive compared to today so i kind of feel quite honored really to have been able to have like from the you know basically from the very i mean you know the spectrum uh, or the z80 processor was basically the very very first processor that that was affordable and in-home computers right and then um you know all the way up to you know the the computer i'm recording this on now which has got like 12 cores and you know <laughs> yeah so I, I feel very um i feel very uh honored to have been able to have experienced that right from the very moment of, of its inception really yeah j j just when i was old enough to be able to understand it and, and write a computer program and did you learn from any specific sources like books or did you find it more online or magazines? Well, yeah, I mean, like, well, yeah, when in 1985, um, yeah, going to a library and getting a book was literally the only way that you could learn to program basically. Um, so 
and then I I do remember actually. So the so my yeah so my university so the Mosaic browser released in I think I, I always get this wrong. I think it was maybe ninety three ninety four, which is when I started the university. And um, back then, so that you know, literally the, the so that's another thing that I feel honoured about being able to experience was I I started at university just as the World Wide Web basically you know was was coming into existence, and then I remember. Netscape releasing and the internet back then, at least the one at my university was very, very slow, especially, I remember this, especially the universities within Europe, the connections between those was relatively good, but the connections, transatlantic connections were really bad. And so I remember like just downloading a single text web page from a, an American university at the time took ages and there, the Mosaic browser, it would have to receive the whole web page before it would start rendering it and um, so yeah. you'd be sat, sat staring at an, a blank screen for like you know two minutes or whatever maybe not that long but felt like that um but then when netscape i remember when netscape one was released that would um sort of render the stream uh, as it as it received it which was like a big um a big functionality boost because you could um you could start reading a web page before because it was so slow coming down the wire yeah so yeah like and then yeah we spent a lot of time on like i remember usenet was pretty big then there was a lot of um people on usenet talking about uh programming and at the time i was writing c plus plus on a sonos terminal which was a black and white yeah <laughs> i feel very old now and um, yeah it's kind of crazy like the the the, the tooling around especially around collaboration and, and, and software engineering now, it's just astonishing, you know. Sometimes even with the current tooling that we used uh, when when working as a software engineer, I found it actually easier to work and collaborate with someone virtually than actually have somebody sitting right next to me because it was right. it's, it's just much faster. You can also have like a larger group of people sometimes reviewing something. And just imagine yeah. this happened when we were at university. It was more like... A group of people in front of a screen switching the keyboard yeah and the bed. yeah it's, yeah and my and then my other favorite story is um one of the jobs i had so i remember yeah so right t around the millennium there was there was really there was there was cbs and visual source there was in 1998 1999 visual source safe was basically like what like one of the very earliest code repository tours and i had a job where you know if you were working with a team of like four people mm. and to, to like the what what would be git push now was um copy your code onto a, a usb stick hand it to the person sat next to you they put it in their computer copy the code off the usb stick and put it on you know what i mean it was that was how we that was how we wrote software it, commercially that was we were you know that's how you commercially wrote software back in like 1998 1999 yeah so um yeah i i um i don't miss i miss some of the, some aspects of those days but i definitely don't miss that yet and the entire hassle around it is is definitely much yeah. faster to think about it so remember yeah, like and, and then and source safe visual source safe the default um behavior for source safe was that you had to check a file out to work on it and and then no one else could touch that file um that was like everyone thought I, I can understand why people thought that would have been a more sensible solution than trying to merge stuff that, that that multiple people have been working on but yeah that that would happen all the time like someone would check out a bunch of files and then they'd be ill or they'd go on holiday and they forget to check them back I mean, in you have to go and like go go around to the the office of the <laughs> system administrator and get him to like break the locks on those files. So, because yeah, that was happy times, right? You were kind of checking those files out using the actual USBs, or was it? No, no, no. That was on a network then, but like, just the, the policy was like you couldn't you couldn't write the file unless you had it checked out. Like the um the develop like Visual Studio whatever it was at the time, like you literally could, it was like the file was read only on your local machine unless you checked it out from source safe. Yeah. I think something called, I think it was called FTPVC 
or something like that, which was like actually file version control based on FTP. And then you had to check them out. <laughs> okay. But that that's, was quite a new one on me. Yeah. Well, unfortunately we have Git right now. So yeah. we do. Yeah. So. Which I, I, you know, there's parts of Git that I don't, I'm not, well, yeah, I just don't understand. I'd, I'd be, I'd be the first one to admit it. <laughs> and from all this experience that you have gathered, how did you end up working on Flagsmith and where did the idea come from? Yeah, so um, that's kind of a long story. Um, so uh, yeah, like in 2002, the dot-com bubble had burst, there was no work, um, you know, and most of the, a lot of the people who kind of got into the internet industry because the money was there, like a lot of those, wouldn't call them grifters, but opportunists, I guess. A lot of the, all the opportunists had left the industry the only people that were left working on it were people that were into it, you know, uh, liked programming or whatever. Um, and um, I thought that, that would be a really good time to start a business. Um, so I, I started a, a, a software agency with a, a friend of mine. Uh, we built a content management system. Uh, that was back in the day when it was, you know, they were very, very expensive. Uh, the CMSs at the time were very expensive. And, and we've been working for this big company who used to do websites for like Volvo and, um, uh, you know, a bunch of large organizations. And so we, we started a business and it, it was a software, it was a web agency basically, but we built a CMS as the kind of way of differentiating ourselves from, uh, yeah. all the other agencies that are out there. And we built that business up and it, it still exists. Uh, it's called solid state group and it, builds, you know, does cloud transformation and mobile apps and a bunch of stuff to people. Um, and yeah, so that, that was, we built, done a lot of work with startups. We've done some investment in startups and, um, we, it, agencies are kind of a, a bad business model. Um, you, you've either got too many, you've either got too much work or you've got too, your team's too large, right? You're either. You either mm. you've never got a perfect balance of, of resource. You've either got not enough or too much. Um, and when you've got uh, not enough, uh, when you've got not enough work, um, we would go and do stupid projects and just fun stuff that we thought would be, you know, interesting stuff to hack on. So we built a massive LED wall, um, which we soldered together, and then wrote some Arduino and Raspberry Pi stuff to, to drive it. Um, we built an app that was meant to be like the anti Instagram, <laughs> which was, it was in the app store for a while. It was called life is terrible. And the idea was that if you're, when, when your life when you know, when something bad happened in your life and um, you'd take a photograph of it and then the filters on the app made the picture look worse. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, like they, they'd like reduce the bit rate, uh, the, 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 the quality of the picture or, or something. Um, and so we just come up with these stupid ideas and then. About five five years ago, we were like, "Hang on a sec, look, this is kind of you know we're we're sort of not wasting money, but we're we're spending a lot of time on on some of these projects, and um, maybe we should think about something that we could use like ourselves or would have some sort of value, not necessarily commercial value, but um, you know maybe a tool that we could open source or um, a framework or something like that." And and we put together a a, a criteria kind of like a checklist of like, so people would come, people in the company would come up with ideas and then we'd score them against the checklist. Like, you know, would we be good at building it? And what's the addressable market size and what's the competition and are there open source versions of it? And, you know, like eight or nine questions and we'd fill in, um, we, 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 I think we filled in like seven or eight of these um, and then we, we sort of like assessed them all. And Kyle, who's one of the co-founders, he um, had been looking at using LaunchDarkly for one of our customers. They were, they were kind of fairly early at the time, but this kind of idea about feature flags. Um, we, we'd had a couple of projects with large companies and larger teams where this was the kind of like the classic argument of, they were meant to do two weekly sprints. And so there was meant to be a deployment of all the platform every two weeks. And, um, 
we kept getting into these situations where there was kind of six or seven teams that were all interrelated. And these are cloud transformation projects. So they were quite often taking like a monolith, running it into a microservice. Um, and this kept happening where, you know, there was like maybe, so let, let's say there were six teams and like maybe four of them were, were ready to go at the end of the sprint. And then two of them had some, you know, showstopper bug that showed up like a day before, or we realized that the API contracts that they were talking to didn't, didn't match. And, um, and so the release would get scrubbed because, you know, one of the teams wasn't ready or, or two of the teams weren't ready. Um, and then that would happen again the following two weeks. And then, you know, before you knew it, like the, the, there hadn't been a release for like two months. And everyone's terrified of doing the release because they know that if they release two months of work across six teams, like the weekend is just going to be like fixing bugs and something's <laughs> going to be broken, service is going to be down. And these were trading businesses that, you know, it was going to cost them a lot of money. And everyone was freaking out. And the CTO was kind of like, the board was like, why haven't we done a release? And um, yeah, and so we were like, no, this is nuts. Like there must be a solution to this problem. And it's a real tangible problem and, you know, must be very common. Um, and yeah, like, and so we discovered feature players, we discovered um, launch dark and um, But we were like, and this was kind of like the genesis of the idea. And that was the form that Kyle filled in. The assessment form was like, what's, you know, what's the idea? Okay, this is the idea. What, you know, what's the addressable market size? Well, the addressable market size is basically all software engineers, right? Which is like, a very, 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 very big market. Um, and the competition is like, well, this one commercial company at the time, there weren't really any open source projects at all. Um, uh, and so, you know, we went through the rest of the assessment and we scored it against the other seven or eight ideas that we had at the time. And it was just like miles ahead. It was like, this is, this is just hugely, um, you know, it's like a hugely good idea and feature flags would be really easy to write, right? Like you just, you write a small SDK, you write an API, away you go. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, we thought it would be really simple uh, to build. And, you know, like a, it, it, one of the other things that it scored really well on was you could build an MVP for that project really, really quickly, right? Yeah. You can just build a very, very simple API. Um, you could build a JavaScript SDK very, very simply to consume that API. Um, yeah. And then, you know, so we, we released, um, you know, a very, very early version of that. And I, we just open sourced it and that's where the, that's where the idea started basically. And could you share any success stories about companies that use Flagsmith uh, right now? Where any kind of success story where, for example, Flagsmith had a very good impact on the development process or has improved it a lot? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it's difficult to be specific around mm -hmm. clients that are, that are paying us, I guess. But like, I mean, it, one of the things that's been most impactful as a, as a company is like, well, first of all, um, most of our customers, most of, most of the people who use the product are like, they're either software engineers or they're technical product managers or, you know, product owners or whatever you want to call it, scrum masters, whatever. Um, and they're actually really good customers to have, right? They're like, uh, you know, kind of our people, <laughs> you know, they're understanding that, I don't know, occasionally things break and, um, uh, but they're, 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 they're in all different shapes and sizes. We've got like, you know, two of the top five largest companies in, in America by, by revenue use our platform and they have big teams using the platform and it, you know, it works for them. And then we have like three person startups who, um, are using the platform and at every, every sort of shape and size of company and engineering team in between. And that's just one of the, the best things about the project is, um, getting feedback from companies of all different shapes and sizes saying like you know this has really helped us in what you know even if it's a three-person team or a you know a 300 person team um yeah it's it's a it's a concept that resonates with people and is, is effective with people um in many different ways and so 
yeah, that, and that's just testament to the, the the design pattern, really, rather than Plasmith itself. But um, yeah, it, like we're constantly surprised at um, kind of how flexible a pattern it is, and how different people can use it in different ways. And I don't know, like we, you know, we've some of our customers use it to store. So it's sort of like a remote config platform as well as just booleans, right? So you can store text as flags, basically, and then. We have people that are using that to store um, translations, like string translations of their application, which, you know, because you can you can provide a context to the platform. So you can say, like, instead of just, like, what are the flags for this application, you can say, what are the flags for this application, and I'm in Poland or I'm in the UK or I'm in Spain. And then the engine will go, oh, if you're in Poland, then instead of returning... Um, Oh, this is a bad. Uh, this is a bad example because I can't speak any Polish. But um, if you, you know, right. instead of it, instead of it saying instead of the string, you know, the value for hello isn't hello. It's you know the Polish for hello. Um, that's up. how bad my Polish is. I don't even know that. So yeah. So you know. So there's people that are using it in um, international know, kind of like websites. Yeah, like they're using it to do internationalization, right? Which like we never even. We, you know, ne- we we were like, what the. <laughs> You know, they show, they did a screen share once. And we were like, what the hell is going on? And they're like, I oh, know we're using it to do all the internationalization of all our strings. And we were like, oh, wow, cool. Um, you know, that's great. And so, yeah, so, so um, yeah, I mean, because they're such primitive things that, you know, they're booleans or small fragments of, of, of either unstructured or structured text. Um, people use them in all manner of ways that um, uh, we hadn't ever in, envisaged, yeah. So this it is versatile, right? And then at the same time, even if you have simple Boolean values, there's a lot of logic you can probably based on that. Especially yeah. if you take into account like other user properties, like a web browser, for example, or the location, like like, like more like a geolocation, you know, of, yeah, of the user. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so um, it's kind of one of those. It's, it's a great, you know, like the the eighty percent use case is really really valuable. Just literally, like I just want to turn this feature off in production because there's some you know relies on I don't know GitHub and GitHub's gone down or you know whatever. Um, uh, that use case is really really valuable. But then the remaining twenty percent is kind of like there's a huge amount of value in that as well. And um, some of our customers just want to do decouple, deploy, and release. That's what we care about. You know, that's all we're going to use the platform for. And then others are like, I'm going to do like, yeah, I'm going to use it to do like string internationalization or I'm going to drive a multivariate test using the platform and, you know, send the send the behavioral data to Amplitude or Heap or whatever. So, um, yeah, like the, the, the base case is like really, really, really lands really well. And then the, the kind of like the, the, the more you know, intermediate and advanced uses of the platform and the concepts and the pattern can have a tremendous amount of value as well. So yeah, it's, it's, um, and, uh, you know, we were naive to a lot of this when we started building it, right? Like we were like, we had this problem with this client where we, where you had like three months of code built up and we couldn't release it. And that, that was, that was, that was all we had in our head at the time. Like we didn't, we didn't, um, we weren't like, oh, you know, you could use this engine as a bucketing engine for a multivariate testing platform, right? Like, we had no idea that that, that was even something that would it, it would encompass. But, um, yeah, like, you know, over time, you know, we've seen, like, that's how people have wanted to use it. And, um, yeah, like, and we, it, you know, we're, it's actually, you know, it's kind of, the the product design is kind of interesting as well because like you said like they're very simple primitives right and um the reason that's powerful is because they're simple and you can kind of bend them in ways that um they aren't or they weren't the intention for that use wasn't there um and we've tried to stay with that philosophy because you know as soon as you start introducing specifics you you immediately can start reducing and retarding that that flexibility it's useful versatile creative and can be applied for an entire spectrum of different products i would imagine in exactly. this case right 
yeah exactly yeah so that that's um yeah so so we've we've tried to be i think we've done a fairly good job actually of um you know like i think so, software projects really generally get defined by what they decide not to do uh as opposed to what they do and i think we've done quite a good job of 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 like saying no we're not going to build out that or we're not going to add this thing because we can see the reason that you might want it to do that but um you know for the majority of people that's just going to be um an impediment or a complication or um a, like a specific use case that you know we we don't want to go down because it it's going to it's going to yeah it's going to reduce the kind of flexibility of the tool and how long you've been building it so far? Because I think you've been on the market for how long? Around? So the, the, we started working on the, we started writing code in 2017 um, and we open sourced it like nine months later. Um, and then we, um, it was kind of a side project of the agency at the time. Like I said, like it wasn't, we didn't, it, it didn't have, um, it wasn't a legal entity at this point. Um, it was it was a project on GitHub, and the 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 ownership of that project was the agency. Um, and then we, yeah, we um, we put a, a a paid version of the API up online, um, and started slowly getting a trickle of what we now call SaaS customers, because the the customer base of the company now is split between. Folk who mm. want to run the, the platform on premise and then folk who want to run against the SaaS platform. And, and we started off with a SaaS platform, which is a, a probably a mistake. Um, uh, but yeah, like that was so that the, the paid API came about, I think, 2019. Um, uh, and yeah, and, and then we we um we set up a legal entity. Um, I think a year following that, yeah. So it's only it's only exists as like a legal entity for for three years, yeah. So because also I learned that the entire Flagsmith as the product, it was it was bootstrapped, and you didn't take any uh, external funding. That you didn't rely on any external funding. And I wonder how was the process of that? Is there any advice that maybe you would give to founders who want to bootstrap their companies in twenty twenty three? And what was your experience kind of and how it affected uh, the way that Flaxnet was built? Yeah, I mean, I think, so the, 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 the approach of having not having an, having a, a, an entity that's not your project that's paying for the food on the table is, is a massively um, powerful thing, right? Like, um, and it's probably not really, I don't think this is really, you know, people focus a lot on raising money and seed rounds and VCs and blah, 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 blah. And having a, having a, a kind of a, a business where what you're working on is a side project. I mean, it was a legitimate side project, right? Like, um, uh, that you're not dependent on, um, you know, if it fails, you're not like, right, I've got to go and get a job or, um, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent or whatever. Um, it's really, really, really powerful, and um, because it, it completely shifts the 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 whole kind of basis of what you're doing, and um, it means that you can behave in a in a much more oh, a much kind of less erratic manner. Like if it's like right, we need you know if we don't get to I don't know twenty k MRR you know within six months, then we're going to have to stop or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like you don't have that, you don't have that pressure and having those, you know, having those targets that you have to impose if you're reliant on the business or, you know, you've raised money and there's some target that you have to hit um, means that you can make much clearer and longer term decisions for the, for the benefit of the business rather than sort of, you know, sort of like bouncing around like, doing a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily have to do just because you're like, I need to get paid or whatever. Um, so that, that I think doesn't get really talked about enough. And, um, that was very, very, um, 
very, very instrumental in in the business being being successful and meaning that we we don't have, you know, we're kind of in control of our destiny in terms of like the direction of the company and um, the product and who we should sell it to and and all that sort of stuff. Um, in hindsight, um, I we probably would have, well, you know, in hindsight, a very wonderful thing. We probably would have pushed it a bit harder. And like, cause there, there were, you know, we open sourced it and we even had a paid API there. Um, but there were months where we didn't write any code for it at all because we were busy doing client work and that was paying for the, you know, for the business and, and, and for the team and the, the office rent and all that sort of stuff. And so I prompt in, you know, if I could do that time again, I probably would have started carving off like right we're gonna you know i don't know we've got a team of say 15 people we're gonna keep two of those people permanently working on flagsmith um rather than what we did which was like we're gonna sell everyone we're gonna have everyone working on client work because that's how we make money at the time um so getting that getting if you if you've got a if you're doing it as a kind of a side project then um getting get, figuring out what that balance and what that ratio is is it's kind of one of those things that you're never going to get right okay like i don't think like you're there's yeah you're probably always going to look back and go oh we should have like tried to put more energy into flagsmith or we did we put too much in and it 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 meant that um the client work suffered or something like that but yeah like it's that was a that that, that bootstrapping aspect was it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I don't think we intentionally bootstrapped it. I just, but we did, we very, very much so intentionally didn't raise money, right? We didn't want to do that. I just, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of too old <laughs> basically. Like I, yeah, I don't have, I can't, you know, when we started the agency and built that CMS, I was working like 90 hours a week, just like coding nonstop, right. Until like three in the morning, just writing code, writing code, writing code. And, um, you know, when you're, 24 you can do that but <laughs> when you're my age you just yeah and i you know i've got a family and i just didn't i didn't i didn't want to be like waking up in the morning thinking oh jesus you know like we've missed our quarterly target and i'm going to get a call from blah and the board meeting is going to be horrible because they're going to be like what the hell are you doing and i, I didn't want to do any of that so um we, we very intentionally didn't do that didn't go down that path but the the other path was it wasn't really a conscious decision it was just like that, that we just had that resource at the time of the agency, so we we lent on that basically. Well, it kind of sounds like a kind of natural reallocation, especially if sometimes you have too much work that sometimes you have not enough. Then reallocating this kind of resource or or this time of the developers into a project which is useful both for your clients and for just general the world, as you know, as it has proven very and very versatile. Then yeah, and that and, and that was actually like in the in that original assessment of like which project should we work on or what should we build the fact that we were our own customer and our clients were well kind of our own customer and our clients projects were perfect um sort of test cases of like would would flagsmith be valuable for that team working on that project and dealing with those problems so that was a that was a tremendously powerful thing that um you know informed a lot of the design of the project early on because it's like okay you know would 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 this feature have solved this problem or would this design approach have solved this problem and so we had a yeah we had like a you know like that was actually like a value you know as well as the agency providing like resource and time for for engineers it also provided um like real world test cases of um you know like right what what are the latency requirements for the flag api and uh you know do you use it on the on the client or do you use it on the server like what would they prefer in this project and so um we didn't have to go out we we didn't have to um like actively go out and try and find customers to do customer development and interview them and you know ask five different teams like how because we had that we had that sat on our you know 
sat on our plate already. So that that was really, really helpful as well. And probably also the list of customers or clients that worked with you before that you could have reached out to with any kind yeah, of questions. Yeah. And yeah, like, you know, and like quite often we would work, the, the agency would work alongside internal teams. So, you know, mm. we had like other, other engineers that we could get feedback from and like, um, yeah, like it, that, that was, um, that, I mean, that was just Kate, it, it would have been a lot of effort and work if we had to have done that, um, you know, from, from scratch. Uh, so that, that was something that was super valuable along the way as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm really, really, um, you know, if you're work, working on or thinking about working on, um, anything related to like developer tooling or, you know, anything like that, or infrastructure or things like that, like having, um, have, having a service business that you can, there's a, there's a ton of stuff that you can leverage from it. Yeah. Hmm. And what kind of tech stack do you use right now to build Flagsmith? What's behind it? Um, so, and this is actually, this is another thing that we've really, really, um, got a lot mm. of feedback on. So we, we, everything's done in GitHub and the whole project's built out in the open on GitHub and actually pretty much like most of the business is, is run off GitHub as well. So if you're a paying customer of ours and you, I don't know, hit, a, hit an issue and we realize it's a bug and we'll, that, that'll, that'll just, you know, then we'll write an issue in GitHub and it will, you know, we will, you know, uh, contact our customer and say, you can follow this issue on GitHub and then, you know, you'll get notified when, um, when it gets fixed. Um, so that's like that, the people absolutely love that. And, and, you know, you, you could, you could adopt that approach, even if you didn't have a, an open source project yep. or, or business. Um, so we use GitHub very, very, very heavily. And, uh, the whole workflow of GitHub, uh, actions and pull requests and all, all of that stuff. Like, you know, the, the roadmaps on there, the discussions are on there, the issues are on there, all the SDKs are on there. And then we have some private repositories that hold like the, the enterprise, uh, components about, you know, that, that we, that we sort of, that we sell on. Um, so yeah, so we, we very, very, very heavily use GitHub. Um, the, uh, the SAS platform is powered, um, by AWS. That that was originally, um, it was originally just a single uh, like region API, and that now runs on on DynamoDB and Lambda. So we've got this distributed API uh, and data store um, that allows us to serve requests globally. So you know if you're in if you're in Sydney, if you're in say you're in Melbourne in Australia, and you want some and you you open an app and it's using Flagsmith, the app asks for some flags and that that request will get rooted to sydney and the aws region in sydney will serve that um you know and then if you're in you know i don't know oregon you'll get something served from california so um we we've started leaning a lot more heavily on uh yeah like on on, on the SaaS side on 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 aws and the the core api is written in in python and django Jago REST framework, uh, the, the dashboard's written in React, and then we've got languages. We've got 12 different language SDKs. Um, and yeah, like with the, uh, you know, associated tooling for that. So that, that's actually been another learning, actually, is um, uh, maintaining SDKs across 12 languages is a massive, massive task. Um, yeah, that's... Um, that you know you can't read you can't read there's there's no shortcut to that and um, you just um you know if you want to add it's you know you, it's kind of one of the frustrating things is if you think oh you know feature x would be amazing to have and then you think it through and you're like oh but well, that's an sdk change and that means we have to do it 12 times so um mm. we're very yeah we're very careful about um those decisions around like um having to commit to writing something and across 12 SDKs, like sometimes it's a little bit simpler. Uh, you know, sometimes it might be, I don't know, 20 lines of code on average across each SDK, but, um, yeah, yeah sometimes it might be a lot deeper than that. And so that, that's, um, 
that that's kind of one of the frustrating things actually um is 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 maintaining those sdks they're like a, a huge undertaking yeah yeah i would imagine because especially <clears throat> because because then within your team do you have the resource to actually maintain those because that will be probably 12 separate programming languages or 12 separate platforms yeah i mean it yeah so like there's there's kind of a little bit of overlap like you know there's like one of the engineers who can write the javascript and the node client um uh obviously like the python one we've got um covered the tricky ones are more around um like uh the front end platform so like flutter we have a flutter sdk um uh we have a company that we work with that help us on that just like you know that that uh frameworks moving quite relatively quickly it's very very popular um but you know like they recently uh opened up um you know it used to be that you'd target ios and android and that was it and then uh, i can't remember when it was like a couple of years ago you could start targeting web as well um and that 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 broke but well, didn't break but people were saying no i want to write um I want to use flags in my Flutter web application. And we're like, <laughs> what Flutter web applications? And then go and find out. And then you have oh. to go and rewrite a bunch of stuff because there's a bunch of new um, aspects to the Flutter API. Um, so yeah, those those things are more complicated. But the, the server-side languages are a lot, um, generally a lot easier to to work with because they, they just, they those those um those platforms just don't change in the same way mm. so i would imagine for example especially if you go for the hybrid mobile development the kind of rate of change over there and the kind of amount of yeah. issues that, that that show up on the way or there's a lot of them one of the one of the other interesting things about um uh working on this project is i get to speak to loads and loads and loads of engineering teams right like you know i'm i'm talking to like two or three or four teams a week um you know across the world doing all sorts of different stuff and so i've got a pretty good um kind of finger on the pulse of like how people are building stuff um i guess, I guess it's kind of filtered on people who are building stuff that are interested in feature flags but um it's kind of crazy um like React Native and Flutter are way, way, way more um, come up way more often than the native Swift and like Kotlin, Android, Java SDK development is. Like, it's kind of unusual to find someone who's got a native Swift iOS application these days. It's just, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, because a lot of people are we're selling to a lot businesses they're writing like internal software systems or stuff like that they're not writing you know yeah. tiktok or, or or instagram right so um yeah so that trade-off for them of 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 you know using using something like flutter or react native as opposed to um native swift um yeah so it's that's really interesting actually that's always something that's interesting like yeah react native and flutter are massively popular um in our world at least yeah and also, if you actually go through the, uh, for example, for iOS, once you get to the app store, the review process is pretty long. So if you want to add a new app, it's probably, I don't know how many days it is right now, but I think it used to be a couple of days and having the opportunity to actually use the feature flagging with yeah, a product right, yeah. already live, yeah, like, really important. The, yeah, the, um, yeah, the use case for mobile is amazing. Um, I mean, it used to be a couple of weeks. I remember like several years ago, it was like 10, 11, 12 days sometimes you'd be waiting. And so um, we actually, we added, that was a, that was one of the SDK changes we made recently with, well, not recently, maybe a, a year and a half ago, was um, uh, our rules engine is now semantic versioning aware. So when you, in the client, you can say like, right, uh, what are my flags and I'm running 3.7.6 of this application um, and so you can you can in flags with you can say like right turn this feature off 
for any version of our application that's 3.7.4 to 3.8 because it's broken. Um, and, and actually, that yeah, that mobile use case is why why we added that semantic versioning um, logic into the into the engine so that um, yeah, like that's like the classic, you know that was just a, that's just a very common problem of like you deploy a version of your application into the app store and something's broken and um yeah it, it, well a it's going to take you days to 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 build a fix deploy a fix and have it released on the app store and then b you're not guaranteed that people are actually going to update the application at all and you can't force them to so and um, being able to say like right this bug affects these versions of the, the platform that we've deployed and we're just going to turn off that feature for those for those versions of the application is like yeah that's like one of the absolute kind of like sort of standout use cases of, of the pattern yeah i would also imagine this could save you your app store ranking because an app just not showing a feature versus an app crashing when you actually want to use that feature right. Those are two completely separate emotions. One of them could, you know, be strong enough to go there and drop a comment that yeah, wouldn't bend. Yeah, exactly. And, it, you know, sometimes it's not your fault as well, right? Sometimes, like, I don't know, you might be using a third-party API or let's say you're using a, a, a login method or something and they change, you know, there's some breaking change in that API. Um, you can just go and then turn that, you know, if you've gated that, that that and um, whatever that functionality is behind a feature flag you can just disable it right and um, for anyone that's running not the latest version of your platform yeah it, it's it's super yeah for, for um for, for platforms uh that you don't um you don't have because that's the great thing is you're decoupling deployment and release if you don't have control of the release which you kind of don't if you're deploying to the apple play store and um, then decoupling that is massively valuable Mm, definitely. And I was wondering um, if you could tell me a little bit about your team right now and how do you all work together? And is that to, and do you still take client work or is like Flagsmith has taken over? Is the child that has grown and taken all of the attention now? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, like we set up its own legal entity in the UK, um, you know, company in the UK uh, a few years ago. Um, I've, been, I've been working full-time on Flagsmith for like three and a half years, four years. Um, the agency still exists and it still does work. Um, a couple of uh, the core team members that, that wrote the platform in the first place uh, came over and, and are now working for Flagsmith as, as part of the Flagsmith team. Um, and then um, we're building a, a remote a remote company, basically. So um, we've got Prokin, uh, Bolivia, a couple of, three, three or four different places in America, Mumbai, Germany, uh, South Korea. Um, yeah, so it's like a properly, um, the, a lot of this happened during COVID. So yeah. It just it just was like a a very natural um that was just a very natural kind of thing to do. Um the other thing that's that's been kind of interesting is um it, being in being in Europe, you kind of offset this problem a little bit, but um if we just had a team in, in London, like if we're working with we have quite a few customers on like the west coast of America. Um, and so it's difficult to get overlap with them in terms of like, you know, they want to stand up some infrastructure in, in Kubernetes or whatever, and they've got like detailed technical questions they want to go through. Um, uh, it's okay being in London because you, you kind of, you know, you're kind of, as far as like the time zones um, are concerned, you, you've, you've kind of got um, the best balance there. But um Having you know, having having team members in in the US and in like South Korea, for example, is super valuable in terms of like like um, like twenty four hour coverage of like support and um, you know customer requests and things like that. Yeah. And how did you find those team members from so many different countries? Did they apply to you, or did you find them? How, uh, yeah, how did... a, a mix actually. Um, sometimes they uh, just emailed us and were like 
because <laughs> I you know I like the project. Um, sometimes we uh, went through you know like used agencies. Um, sometimes it was like just internal network, like yeah, a whole mix really. And um, hiring's a <laughs> hiring's a super hard problem, and um, yeah, I don't think there's like. Um, yeah, there's not a there's not a single best repeatable me method of, of of hiring team members. Really, it's it's um you just got to put the hours in to do it. Really, mm -hmm. are you hiring right now? Or are you do you have any open positions that you would like to mention? Maybe uh, when, we we just had a, we just filled a couple very recently, um, and and actually like the team's fairly well balanced right now. Um, mm. I think, but I think the next hire would probably be someone around, um, like developer relations, someone mm. who can, um, uh, you know, do more, um, I don't know, like conferences and I don't know, like tutorial videos and community engagement and things like that. But right now we've got a pretty balanced team, but having said that, like, um, if, if, a if a a CV comes in, you know, if someone emails me, uh, you know, and they're like, you know, just bullseye hmm. person for the for the company, then we, you know, we we wouldn't just completely ignore it. Yeah. And you also uh, you run, and I think you still continue to run a podcast, right, where you speak with the creators of the most successful open source projects. And that's I was right. Yeah. That... Hmm? And I was wondering, sorry, yeah, was, there, sorry, was there any piece of advice that, uh, you kind of found through all the interviews that you have conducted with the open source, uh, and contributors and, um, you know, and the founders of those projects, is there any kind of piece of advice that stood out to you that you could share as well a little bit in a jest? I mean, I, I think the, to be honest, I think the actual the answer to that is kind of meta um because the the process of putting that podcast together mm. when we when we were a very small team we were trying to figure out like what like marketing activity can we do that's got the best like time reward effort mm. and um, we thought a podcast would be really good because it's like you know if you want to, i know i i can never if i've got a blog posts that I want to write. I'm always putting it off. I'm always procrastinating about it. And, um, uh, I, I just, I never get it done. Right. But like, if you've scheduled a podcast recording with someone, you have to turn up and do that one hour because you're obligated to, because there's another human being who is going to, you know, have scheduled that time. Um, but no, the, the thing that, the, the thing that, um, has been the biggest learning from that was. When we, when we, before we, the, the thing even existed, um, I was talking to one of the guys I was working with quite closely and it was kind of his idea. And he was like, well, who would you want to talk to? And I reeled off a list of names of, of, of people who'd founded like massively successful companies. And um, I said, well, you know, like, I'd really like to speak to Mitchell at HashiCorp and I'd really like to speak to David Kramer who started Century and like projects that I really like. And, um, and, you know, and I was like, well, they're not going to talk to me because like you know the pro the podcast doesn't exist and we don't have any listeners and this tiny little project with you know 400 stars on github or whatever um and he just went and mailed them all uh and like most of them were like yeah sure i'll come on your podcast um so i think um i think the learning really has just been um you know just related to the 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 sort of the sense of openness and collaboration around particularly like commercial open source yeah. companies and founders like they just come from a a very sort of strong background of like you know i can i can build a commercial entity and i can provide a bunch of open source code for people and um i don't have to i don't you know i don't that they they can live in perfectly complementary in a perfectly complementary manner with each other. And I don't have to worry about like one negatively affecting the other. Um, and that, that mindset and that sort of philosophy 
as like clearly like bleeds out into, you know, like if, if I was to, I don't know, speak to a, a purely commercial business that doesn't really have, you know, like the, the founder of some, you know, successful, they'd probably be like, no, you know, like, I don't know, maybe they wouldn't, but that, that was just my feeling was like the, the, the sort of frame of mind and the state of mind that these, um, these founders have, um, in terms of like, you know, they're building tools that, you know, like the amount of value that like Terraform has provided to the world for free, right. is kind of astonishing. And, um, you know, or like Ansible, for example, like one of the first recordings I did, um, uh, was with, um, the founder of Ansible. Um, and yeah, they were just like, yeah, I'll come on your podcast. Brilliant. You know, I have to talk about that. Actually, the, the, the first commit on Ansible is amazing. It's like, 30 lines of python yeah it's brilliant the the, the if you if you go and um turn the answer repository and look at the first commit it's like a 30 line python program yeah so it's just amazing yeah from the, all the, whole, pro, from the all beginning yeah all of it yeah it's really cool because yeah. <laughs> i imagine that some of those projects they just kind of come in like as a ready repositories we, we, without, yeah, and actually, yeah. I, so yeah, we we actually lost, we didn't lose some of the early history, but I think we just there was some boring when when we moved it from the solid state version control to the to the GitHub one. I think probably that I think I think the reason that we dropped those initial commits was because the commit messages were rated eighteen, probably. <laughs> um, and, you know, because we were just like a close team that were working together and. We're just mucking around so and um, we didn't want to go through the work of sanitizing all those commit messages so yeah so it, yeah yeah i'm kind of annoyed about that actually i feel like we should have just done that but um because you know sure trying to find some indiana jones of github commit messages that's going to go weird <laughs> find them <laughs> yeah because i kind of you know it's like if you're going to go to the trouble of cloning the repository and looking through the first 30 commits of the project then um you're probably all right getting the odd f-bomb but i i don't know yeah i i need to start doing this more often thinking about it yeah no it's a great it's it's uh, it's a it's quite a fun hobby yeah it's it's kind of annoying because it's very unusual like a lot of them uh start as like or you know they just started as a private repository and then someone just um just, it, just they didn't import the history of the project so yeah the ansible one's one that definitely sticks in my mind it's like this is just crazy because i you know, that, that became like a multi-billion dollar company. You know? And how important do you think is the community around an open source project once you release it? And what is the best kind of way to market maybe and build it? Because I know that you build the <laughs> podcast kind of in parallel with the company that you've been building that kind of helped, you know, with so the kind that, of invisible. That, that's actually been another, that's been another, um, learning from the podcast which is and it's it's maybe a little not sad but most commercial open source companies the vast majority of the software is written by people that are paid to write that software and that's been a learning and that's true of flagsmith we do have people contribute uh, we have customers that pay us to contribute we have regular you know people off the street as it were who who, who just send us a pr and um want to work on it but the vast majority of the commits are people that are paid to do that. And, and so I, I know like, I feel like, I feel like sometimes, I don't know if this is a bit of a negative way of come, of looking at it, but I think that this whole like community thing is sometimes a little bit over egged. And I feel like there's a little bit of, people like to like we I don't know, we've got a discord that's been useful have we put up a discord we've got several hundred people who are part of that discord server and you know they ask questions and stuff like that i don't think we've got a community right like we're not we're not at that stage we don't have a conference people don't have our stickers on their laptops like and i think there's a little bit sometimes of like I think like commercial open source businesses, they, they want to kind of like, oh, you know, like we've got our community and it's like, it's not really like 95, 98% of your code is written by people that are paid to write it. So in my opinion, that doesn't really constitute a community. And um, 
when you've got people putting on a conference or flying to places to meet each other to hack on Flagsmith or talk about Flagsmith or whatever, then, okay, then I'm going to sit down and go, right, yeah, we've got a community. Look, there it is. But I kind of feel like they sometimes, I feel like it's like, I don't know why people feel like they kind of feel like they should say that they do when they kind of don't really. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that, maybe it's a bit cynical. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's like, you know, and I, I think, I think the, the kind of the, the, the real, the, the, the question really boils down to, you know, if the company disappeared tomorrow, what would happen to the project, right? Like, would it, would people carry on working on it? Would there be people looking at the security patches that come through from the depender bot on GitHub and figure out the package resolution and carry it? Would that happen or not, right? Because if, if that wouldn't happen, if that, if that, if, if the cut, if the project would just atrophy and, and stop at that point, then you haven't got a community. And I think a lot, I mean, even, you know, there was, um, I think the, the project that comes to mind is Rethink DB. So that was a very, very popular or relatively popular, very heavily funded database. Really cool. I really love that, that project and that, and that, that platform. They couldn't make the business model work and run out of money. And the, the, you know, it's like, it's not a thing anymore, right? Like people don't use it anymore. I, I think there's probably some like hardcore people that still keep, keep patching it or whatever. But they're probably just doing that because they've got a product, a production infrastructure that's running on it or whatever. But I'm so I'm kind of it's a bit cynical of me to say so, but I really do think like they're not they're not they're not really properly truly functioning open source projects if the the if the community is people paid to be the community effectively, right? Do you know what I mean? I know if that. I don't want to sound sort of too negative about it, but uh, like, we're, you know, we're trying, like we want people to contribute and use it and get excited about it and all this sort of stuff. But we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't sort of hang our hat on it. We don't put a massive amount of emphasis on it. Um, just cause it's like, I, you know, if it was, if it was me wanting to use, I don't know, Terraform or, or whatever. Um, I, ju I, I, I don't, I just want the thing to work, right? Like I want the quality of the software to be good and I want the, com the documentation to be good and I want the thing to work. The fact that there's a Discord server with 10,000 people you're talking about it all day, do I care about that as a, as a, as a user of Terraform? Not really. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I, you know, I think it's a realistic approach and maybe the thinking how to define that community right now maybe it's a group of people and companies that have a vested interest in this open source project running right because i mean if, for example if i use uh, some open source project which is supported by the company if this company suddenly let's say and goes out of business for me it might be more worth to try to support it after than replacing it completely from my yeah and, and from my code base kind of i would probably would depend you know how how crucial of a dependency that was within the project itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, yeah. So, um, but I, I just think it's kind of a nice warm word. And, and I think people kind of, I just think that people kind of, the word is, I don't know why I'm in a, I don't know if I'm in a bad mood about this, but I just, it just, it, sometimes it feels a little bit forced. Mm. This, I think it might be also used as a marketing word in general. It seems that especially uh, even around the projects which were not open sourced and the word bootstrap, there was a big movement of kind of create the community first around your project and so on. But then at the end of the day, what you're defined with is, is the stuff that you built, is it useful or is it not? And how many, you know, people are dependent on this after and they don't yeah. have to really be the most, you know, overly excited people on the internet, but if they use it, they trust you. They use your code within their own code base, sometimes for very, you know, dependency, like as a crucial dependency. Then I think yeah, it can I mean, that, work. That's the thing is like, you know, because of the nature of what the platform does, we're like a part of a hot code path, right? A lot of, you know, it, if you use Flagsmith in your stack and you're running it yourself, for example, you know, you're, you're, 
tr- very very trusting of that platform right you're like it's, it's 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 not some trivial thing that like oh if it breaks we can fix it tomorrow or next week or whatever um and so to me like i care much more about the the quality of that experience rather than the quality of the community experience like to me validation is people using it and putting a thousand requests a second through it in their self-hosted infrastructure right like that's like i'm so happy about that um you know like much more so than like you know if there was some i don't know virtual event that went on where people were like oh you know let's let's we're, we like this do you know what i mean it's like it's kind of like i i just i i'm i care much more about people using it really rather than kind of this sort of like hanging out and hanging out on the discord i don't know yeah no i agree with that completely because quite often you have some technology that might be potentially very hyped people are very excited about it but then how many people actually use it it's kind exactly of- yeah realistic yeah. or kind of a solid yeah. proof that, that what yeah. you built and, and it's actually you know like i i uh the 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 linus torvald's quote of um talk is cheap show me the code right it's kind of a little bit like that it's i think it's a bit of a european um kind of like you know um yeah maybe like a northern european like you know like yeah show me the code kind of thing you know and from the perspective of your next moves with Flagsmith, what, what is next on your plate and what, what what is your team working on right now? Do you have anything that you, uh, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, we just want to try and just keep improving the, the developer experience. So the, the deployment experience, the experience around, you know, making it as flexible as possible, um, as performant as possible. Um, we're actually thinking of open sourcing um, the edge, the, dis- the, di- the, di- the, the distributed platform that runs the SaaS products as well. Um, so yeah, like we, we're kind of there's a, there's a couple of kind of larger features around contextually aware flags and making those more flexible. Um, uh, but really, it's it's like just we're just wanting to just like polish and polish and polish right now really rather than um do these big like you know new features like um thus some of the feedback we get commonly is like you know like yeah just working just putting much you know as much work as possible into the documentation or Mm -hmm. you know the the sdk guides or um just that sort of stuff yeah just we just really want to um just make the whole, you know, the whoever you are, whether you're like deploying it in Kubernetes for some huge um, infrastructure, or you're just running it on your laptop as a student doing a thing for a course or whatever. And um, I know everything in between. We want it to um, just be really a really great experience, regardless of of who you are. Really, yeah. Well, so it kind of seems like you've arrived at the feature set that is already filling all you know all the requests and now yeah i mean no they, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff but like i mean we've got like 170 issues in a in a core monorepo which most of those are requirements for new features or tweaks or whatever um but uh, you know there's a, t- there's a ton of stuff we'd like to do but um like we spend a lot of time working on the the, the developer experience yeah awesome thank you so much no problem yeah thanks Thanks for having me. Yeah.